Welcome back, everybody. I am once again Mason, and you are once again listening to Level Zero Literacy. We have got an awesome episode lined up for you today, one that I am personally so, so excited about. That is Disco Elysium. That said, the episode is going to contain discussion of topics that include, but are not limited to, sexual assault, murder, body horror, substance abuse, and child abuse. Please use your best judgment before proceeding. And also, we're going to thoroughly spoil every aspect of the game from front to back. So, be forewarned. Thank you once again for listening, and enjoy the episode. Hello folks and welcome back to Level Zero Literacy. This week we are talking about a juggernaut in the narrative world, Disco Elysium. Disco Elysium is an RPG, majority text-based adventure game that sits in some worlds of point-and-click and visual novel. It was directed and written by Robert Kurvitz and made by Zaum. A lot of people would say that DE is in the same vein as an old game such as Planescape Torment. You play as Harriet Dubois, a cop with amnesia working for a fairly new police force investigating a murder in the town of Revachal. Throughout your investigation, you begin to learn more about the world, the tensions between different factions, and the many, many minutiae of details that flesh things out. As you are guided by the thoughts in your head and your partner, Kim Kitsuragi, you must piece together the details about yourself, about your case, and about the world around you. Big themes include dissecting and understanding political ideology and the ethical dilemmas that lie within them. How are you guys feeling? I'm feeling good. You feeling good? I'm feeling good. I love this game. It's such a great game. You might have noticed, dear listeners, that the audio quality has either significantly improved or reduced, and you might have heard the chime of a regulator Time Master clock. That would be because we're having our first in-person level zero literacy. That's right. We've broken the barrier. We're true podcast guys now. I'm sitting here with a mic in my face. Hell yeah. Well, you were sitting in with the mic in your face before, I hope, but just well, like yeah. now it's di- now it feels different. I yeah, mean, it was pretty far. Now you're in a recliner with a mic in your face, so that's got to feel like an upgrade. And also, I, I take a little bit of. You said that you start the game as a cop with amnesia. Yeah, which is not entirely true. I mean, you, you start the game with your brain and spine talking to you. Yeah, because the game is not the narrative doesn't start. In Revachal, it doesn't start with Harry Dubois. It starts with an unnamed character coming off a three-day bender and is imagining his brain coming to life and speaking to him and wishing to die. <laughs> that's like that is that is the Grim. introduction. That's the that's what you come to first in Disco Elysium. It really sets the tone of things to come, and it's not a one-off thing. Every time. Harry goes to sleep. Those guys are back being like, wouldn't it be fun to die? Yeah. I I just want to note while we're here for a long time, the first few lines of the game were my moment. Oh yeah. Like just cause, cause they're what they're called like reptilian brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ancient reptilian brain and and limbic system. And I just vibed with that so hard. It's hell. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's all instincts. It's, and that's, that's all Harry is, is all instincts. Yeah, so one of the one of the key mechanics of the game is that you have these 
sort of like all the things you think would think of that make up the average person, you know, the different attributes that make up the average person all converse with you, the player, from the inside of Harry's head. There's there's three. The id, the ego, nope. and the nope. super ego. No, nope. many more than that. Surely um, there will be no more than 23. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, the attributes are broken down into four major components. Intellect, psyche, psyche physique, and motorics. And in each of those four areas, there are six different attributes. So for your intellect, you have things like visual calculus and drama and encyclopedia so it's like your knowledge of things and your your understanding of things psyche is things like volition and authority things that might more make up your personality or like how you approach things or how you understand people and then you have physique which is your physical like attributes like your pain threshold your shivers so it's a mix of like instincts as well as your physical body responding to the world and communicating to you how it's feeling and then motorics is things such as hand-eye coordination and reaction speed and perception so your ability to quickly discern and dissect or react to the things that are happening around you. And that's kind of the main scope through which you view and interact with the world and the people around you is these different attributes of yourself speaking to you and trying to help you understand what's going on. And it's really it's really interesting and unique as far as an RPG system is concerned. It's probably one of the most innovative character systems I've ever seen in an RPG. It's not, you don't have, you don't have a motorix attribute that, well, I, you kind of do. You kind of, in one sense, you have a motorix attribute that simply sets the baseline level for all your motorix skills. But after you pass the point of character creation, that number is static. When you level up in the game, you simply increase your individual one of your 24 individual skills and the large the the governing skill remains like largely untouched throughout the game so you never get better at psyche you get better at volition or you get better at understanding your imagination right something i think would be interesting to frame our conversation throughout the whole game is maybe just us mentioning what our stat like our initial stat spread was because yeah. i think the best thing about this particular system is that this affects what your thoughts and responses can be in the game in a way that like other like say more combat focused games can't even touch yeah cuz like you know when something is a skill check in another game like a strength check you know you roll a d20 you check your strength but like in this game if your visual calculus or empathy are high enough it literally gives you a different thought that you would not have if your stat was not high enough yeah and you're able to say something different based on that and i think that is incredibly interesting so so why don't you start us off what was your stat spread if you can remember so i was a four four two two so four in the visual calculus conceptualization thing, which is int, right? 
intelligence. Mm-hmm. And then I was four in the empathy esprit de corps. That is, what? what is that? <laughs> Played only Psyche. Psyche. And then two in the physical stats. Because I wanted to be like a detective detective and not a physical detective. Yeah. I had a I had a high psyche and I had a high motorix. And that is because in my first playthrough I went high intelligence and high physique. So this time I was mainly interested in there's a stat that represents your imagination called Inland Empire. I was mainly interested in what I would get from that. So that's why I wanted I wanted psyche this time around. Yeah, my so my first playthrough, I mostly went. I was like pretty heavily psyche, with a little bit in motorix, and then in my second playthrough, I was very high in physique, and then a little bit in psyche. I'm kind of curious as to what y'all's favorite mental attribute is, because I have mine, but I feel like you learn. I feel like the way you kind of approach the game. And the way you like to learn from the game is generally pretty attached to what your favorite mental attribute was. Initially visual calculus, because I like that kind of thinking. But since that skill doesn't really give you a whole, like, it ultimately doesn't give you a whole lot besides a few, like, easier white checks. I would say it leads to some of the most interesting like visual scenes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's kind of what I wanted out of it. But if I had to pick like a very conversation-based one, conceptualization. Mm. Conceptualization's like a pretty fun one. Mine was definitely Inland Empire, and I'm so glad I went with that as my signature skill this runaround. First playthrough, I did Persuade, which was useful, but overall way more boring yeah, and but- I loved it the first time around. But going inland empire and just like my necktie started talking to me, mm-hmm. and I got to talk to a murder victim, and he said things that were having the insight of the entire game behind me already were like incredible. To listen to what Harry imagines, like the dead corpse saying, truly insane. But like also, you know, the more I play, the more I'm like, oh, I want to do a run with this skill now because now it's you know now that i played the game a second time i got all these shivers checks that i didn't get the first time Mm -hmm. and the shivers will just chime in and be like oh somewhere out in precinct 41 these two characters roll up one is massaging his nose thinking about his drunk partner in revishal which would be like nonsensical on a first playthrough but like now it's like now that i know it's like oh yeah that's like the main character's like partner at his home precincts and like these are things that they're actually doing because you know because they you know it's insane what's yours what's your favorite i mean mine is shivers i so shivers is like is sort of your body's reaction to the world around you and recalling things that you already know and like thing your instincts sort of so the whole game's fully voice acted which is insane crazy it is hours and hours of voice acting and it's so the voice acting throughout is so compelling the voices the voices are just genuinely perfect and so in most of the game all of your thoughts all of the, the things that talk to you from your mind have the same voice what we kind of assume is like what harry's voice is or maybe you know whatever you want whatever your opinion is except for shivers sometimes there are moments 
where the your shivers like picks up on something more ethereal and it's like this child just whispering to you and those moments are always really magical to me because there's just something about the way of like opening your body to the world and like soaking in the world around you and then just like the world reaching back out to you because you've been willing to expand yourself out to it. So just those moments are always come across to me as like incredibly powerful, like bits of storytelling. I never had that happen to me even once like a child talking to me. So now I have to do, I have to do a shivers playthrough now. That's awesome. What would, so was your signature skill was shivers on my second. So my first playthrough, my signature was inland empire. Mine was Inland Empire on my second. So we've talked about that, one. That, that's like the gameplay. Well, it's, it's the just there's play. three parts to Harry, and that's one of them, right? Yeah. The ne- the other two are equipment and thoughts. So I feel like we have to go into that. Well, equipment's pretty simple. Oh, no, it's not. I would say it is. No, it's not like... I mean, it's simple in the sense that most of it is just little stat additions. They're tools. They're tools, but like... It's not in that it's so much more than equipment is in other games. I put on a hat that turned me into a communist. Yeah. I My necktie told me to build a Molotov cocktail out of it and throw it at a guy. Right? So it's not just... I was thinking more about just the wrenches and the flashlight. You're talking about like the clothing the outfits. Yeah. The clothing just contributes to your stats or your thought cabinet. Well, most, right. I mean, mostly, yeah. But like also it opens up dialogue with people and like it gives you thoughts and it gives you options you don't have otherwise, right? Yeah. Because like the necktie thing, that didn't happen in my first playthrough at all. And I feel like it's like a huge part of the game for most people. It's like your neck, oh yeah, there's like, you're this crazy guy. You're, ne- you're imagining your necktie talking to you. That didn't happen to me in my first game. And my second playthrough, it was like a whole character. Mm-hmm. It's my clothes, you know? Yeah. I fortunately or unfortunately didn't experience that because I told my necktie to shut up and it just kind of didn't <laughs> talk much throughout my playthrough. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. There are some things like electrochemistry I would really have liked to been able to shut up. I No, I love electrochemistry, unironically. He's like top five. I I avoided it because... I don't like heavy drug use. When I was playing through, I made sure to avoid those things. I do like that there is, you know, electrochemistry is your just impulse is more like impulsive nature. You know, just telling you to do the things you, you know, as a player, it's you know, like you're always like kind of tempted to do, but you never do it. And now there's someone <laughs> like, hey, you should do it. You should, you know, do drugs and smoke a cigarette and drink more beer. And like I don't, I don't think you can lower electrochemistry to the point where it it doesn't talk to you. you and I think in there a little bit. I think the it reflects like Harry's like very degenerate, super addicted to a bunch of things like nature as a person. And I find I also find that fascinating. But we got we got to talk about thoughts. So yeah, so the other big game mechanic, or the other big mechanic of Harry is you have a thought cabinet. And in this thought cabinet, you can basically adopt 
concepts and ideas that have been presented to you by other people usually. And this might be things like thinking about different political ideologies or different aspects of different political ideologies like fascism or communism. Or they might be more things central to your person like there's one called Long Way Home that's just trying to recall where you live or where you used to live. And then there's like more erratic thoughts like homosexual underground where you believe that there is a cabal of homosexual people within the city and you need to like uncover them so that you can join their ranks. That one's real. That one's yeah. real. So, I, I have that thought in real yeah. life. And so all the thoughts generally will do like any number of things. They might give you bonuses or detractions from specific traits or attributes. They might raise the level cap of different attributes or they might do something very specific. So there's one thought cabinet that is about the armor set of the man who you're investigating the murder of. And it gives you like this very ominous sounding bonus if you research it where it's you get like a plus two for motorics checks against people wearing fair weather armor and you're like huh that's interesting yeah yeah. Hmm. i wonder why wonder why i'd need that so that's those are sort of like the you know the your clothes and your equipment and then your thought cabinet and then your attributes are sort of like your three main elements that make up not really your character but harry yeah the thoughts are the best part dude the thoughts are the best part they're even better than the attributes i almost cried when i finished lonesome long way home yeah yeah that was very depressing it was (laughs) a lot of the thoughts you get from people kind of talking you through things and it gives harry something to think about but sometimes like you just say things and then and then your brain will chime in like hey man are you like a you like a capitalist? You talk a lot about needing money, wanting money all the time. Maybe you're a capitalist. Hey, hey man, you a hobo cop? You talk about going through the trash and living in a dumpster. Maybe you're a hobo cop. You keep telling people that you're the law? Maybe you got something weird going on that tells them that you're the law. As a result of playing someone with amnesia... They do this really brilliant system of allowing the player to influence who this person is while they still have their own life and backstory. You kind of get to guide them in this new world that they found themselves in at, while at the same time trying to help them understand where they, who they are and where they came from. And so there's a really nice balance that's struck in giving the player, making the player feel like they get to make a lot of decisions and choices for their character, like in a traditional RPG, while also not detracting from what they wrote for Harry as a character. And I think it also builds this incredible cycle where you're picking dialogue options you want and talking to people about concepts you want to explore and then you get a thought and then Harry thinks about it for a while and then you complete the thought or whatever and now now that you have it internalized you can express it to people you have new dialogue options that you can choose you can you know 
it becomes like part of your identity because it's something that you've internalized. It's so fascinating to me how they've done it to where like everything, no matter which thought it is, it always builds up to a really satisfying conclusion where it's like at the end, at the end of it, you, you always get something out of it, or at least I did. And it always makes me want to spend all my skill points. When you level up in the game, you can either increase one of your attributes or unlock room for more thoughts and both playthroughs. I just, I have got all of the thought cabinet slots unlocked because it's so, it's so awesome. Yeah, same. Uh, the only time I spent a lot of points on actual skills was the literal end of the game when I didn't need to spend them on thoughts anymore. You got to the end, you had like four built up like I did? Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the actual story a little bit, the actual narrative. Is that what our podcast is I think, about? I think, we've, Son of a bitch. I, think, I think we've actually, laid, it's like, I think it was important that we kind of laid a groundwork of how the game functions because how the game functions very is very seamlessly interwoven into the story itself. We're also going to have all very different opinions on what the events were and what the outcomes were just based on our Harry's, right? Yeah. So the first thing that happens after you come to, after your ancient reptilian brain and limbic system try to keep you from waking up, is you find yourself in a trashed hostel room and almost completely naked. And so you put yourself together you step out into the hallway and you meet Classier for the first time. You don't know it's Classier, but this is this is where things get fun, okay? You ready? I disagree entirely. <laughs> the first thing that happens when you come to, you find yourself naked in a trashed hostel room. You put yourself together and then you walk into the bathroom and try to learn what you look like. <laughs> and, and then go to find your shoe. <laughs> yeah, I, I the shoe thing was a bigger deal to me. <laughs> well, you, you still run in. You still end up running you into Classier as, as you step out. <laughs> we all three went different directions. <laughs> God yeah. Almighty! I wasn't even super worried about what I was, what I looked like. Or at least the first time, you know. I was like, I, I put my outfit together. I went out and got my shoe, and then I went to go downstairs. I both times I've always because like i guess it's because you're coming off a three-day drunk bender before the events of the game your character portrait on screen is this like melting ghoulish abstract thing and in order to remember what you look like you have to go into the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror so so i i did go and look at the mirror like immediately if you don't do that your picture is it's like, just that the whole game huh. The whole game. There's like seven different character photos you can get. But we're, if, at, we're at Classier. Yeah. So you talk to Classier. Probably tell her you want to make fuck with her. <laughs> I did not do that. You didn't? <laughs> I didn't even... No, I did not try to even flirt with her. I did that. Because like the interaction made me so confused at first anyway. Because, you know, th this is where you really learn you have amnesia. Yeah. And, you <laughs> and you've been interacting with multiple of these people uh, there's a couple people you've already interacted with and most of them you have done bad shit to <laughs> i would say all of them yeah every single one i don't think there's really anyone you've had a positive interaction harry's with. a real piece of shit like an enormous motherfucker 
But yeah, like Clausia, you see her, she's pretty. You're a successful young entrepreneurial businessman. You hit on her a little bit, you know? You see how she's if she's feeling it. It's early, she's smoking. And eventually you find your way downstairs and you get to meet your partner for this investigation, Kim Kitsuragi, who is I know is your favorite character. Listen, he's not a good cop, but he's a good man. Okay? I don't believe in good cops, but Kim's a good man. And so your investigation begins. He's a little moderate on some issues for my taste. but Well, he's an agent of the moral intern, okay? That's his job. He doesn't like to get into those things. So what was, after you left the whirling in rags, what was the first thing you did? Talk to Kuno. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your first Kuno experience? Oh, I can't wait for this. It's hard to remember every detail, but most of it was... Me talking to him a little bit, him calling me a pig and telling me to fuck off. He he says homosexual slurs to me. He doesn't, actually. He doesn't. It's a different slur. Yeah. Believe oh, it or really? not. Yeah. That was something confirmed by the developer. That's yeah. not something you could have known. It has. It starts with F and ends with T and has all the same like it has the same number, number of letters. letters. Yeah. But it's like F-L-E-U-R-T or something. Oh. F-L-E-R-E-T. It's like... It's something within the it's something within the world. I see, but I do. I think the intent is for that to be. <laughs> it's yeah. It's definitely meant to be read as that, but it's not actually. And I try to talk logic to him because my character is a logic based character. And ah, uh, yes, the debate yeah. lord. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I try to talk some sense into this, which you know. With my background as a literal teacher in public schools, I should have known wouldn't have worked. Uh, <laughs> but I tried, and that didn't work well, and then I went to like inspect the body and all that. Kuno is genuinely... It's really hard for me to say like my favorite... I have my favorite characters in this game, and we'll get to them later. Kuno's up there. I love his... How he's written as a child who has just been surviving in this like pretty terrible place. He's a he's a product of his environment. Yeah. He's surrounded by people who are drug addled, so he's drug addled. And they don't they don't pull the punches either. They're just like that he's he's a kid that's kind of messed up because what else would he be? It it, it amazes me how accurate it is cuz you know I knew a bunch of kids like Kuno when I was teaching, and it really resonated with me. I didn't spend a lot of time with Kuno overall, and I know y'all did, but it did resonate with me how like well and real realistically he was written as a kid who grew up in a place like this. Yeah. When I left, the owner of the hostel was really upset with me that I hadn't got the body down, so I really just tried to get the body down. Yeah. Did you, uh, what did you do when he asked you to pay your tab? I don't want to. <laughs> That's one of my favorite parts. I don't want to talk about that. Did you I, fail so the skill check? Yeah, on my, on my first okay. playthrough, <laughs> I, I might, okay, I might have tried to run out on the tab, flipped the owner, the double, the, the double, the double, the double bird, bird, and crashed into an old lady in a wheelchair. I'm, it's, anyone, anyone could have done it. That was that was like the first thing that happened to me in Disco Elysium where I was like this game is amazing. <laughs> Cuz it happened to me 
<laughs> it happened to me in my first playthrough in the first like you know like 30 minutes i was like this is incredible because basically your character is running jumps and turns around to flip the double bird and the whole game stops <laughs> and your brain is just like wait <laughs> you're about to you're about to do something something horrible is about to happen and then eventually time continues and you crash directly into this wheelchair bound older woman so like that's i want to explore that a little bit because i tried to get my fiance to play this game she had to stop because she couldn't get the body down and she wasn't willing to do anything that it took to get the body down because it all involved being a shithead in some way. Yeah. But I think the the moment that the game like clicks for a lot of people is when you do the first thing that only like a fucking nightmare person would do that you really just like let loose and do something unhinged and then you come out on the other side and you're like wait a minute that's the point this is so good yeah that's like when disco elysium really opens up when you're like i'm just gonna walk up to this woman and i'm gonna tell her that her husband's dead and missing and just just heckle her i'm going to absolutely harangue this woman that her husband is lying missing somewhere and i'm the only one that can go find him and we'll get to i'm sure we'll get to that later yeah because we're start we're we're got we'll probably just like take this one day at a time and just kind of like talk through our experiences on each day but the but like those are where the gems are yeah the real gems of the game is when you start doing the unhinged things and then you're like oh that was sick i can't believe that worked so the first thing i did is i went down to the harbor and i talked to measurehead who is basically this racial supremacist, fascist person that for some reason works for the Dockers Union, the Dock Workers Union. Essentially, he sells, he tells you that you are an unfit specimen of a human being and that if you want to be allowed into the harbor, you have to internalize concepts of racial supremacy i believe the exact words he uses are ham sandwich race yeah <laughs> you're part of the ham sandwich race poisoned yeah you stink of al ghul, al ghul. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially at that point your options become you can internal you can genuinely internalize racial <laughs> racial realism or you can tr- attempt to beat up measure uh measure head or you can try to find an alternative path into the harbor. On my first playthrough, I found where the alternate path was, but wasn't able to get the Eternite out of the way. And I failed to beat up Measurehead many times. So I had to internalize You had to become a racist. <laughs> you had to become a racist. I had to become a racist. <laughs> On my first playthrough, I found the alternate path up, and there's like a very short jump you have to make, <laughs> a very short, easy jump, yeah. and I failed it four times, and I had to become a racist. All right, I'm going to make the gamers mad. I save scummed that jump, it's so okay. I didn't have it's to okay. become a racist. <laughs> yeah, it's totally so, fine. <laughs> something interesting about, about the game is all of your roles are independent. They are not determined yeah they're not determined like when you boot the game up there's there's like a set seed or whatever so you do have the ability to save before you make 
a check and then just keep making the check until you succeed it. I didn't do that on my first playthrough, mostly because I wasn't really cognizant of it, but I did do it a little bit in my second one just because there were specific things that I wanted to see that I didn't get to see my first time around because I locked myself out of different things. Can I ask you this? Did you save scum because you wanted the coat or because you didn't want to be a race realist? Because I did not want to be a race realist. Okay, fair enough. Since we're all here and at this, this means none of us ever spec'd a character that could shoot the body down. <laughs> After you shoot the body down, you can give a high five to Kim and it gives you a thought. A special okay. thought for only shooting the body That's down. That's pretty good. But yeah, I've never done it in-game. I've just seen it done. So, after you get into the docks, you find a shipping container and you, you know, maybe you put the shipping container onto the, onto the landing can't get it open can't get it open but eventually you do come to the office of the leader of the dock workers union uh everart who is this behemoth of a man who seems to have the eyes he's the guy who has the eyes and ears all over town and knows everything about everything also hugely corrupt yeah but we're we gonna get into this right now. Let's get into. We're we gonna it? get into this let's right now. God, <laughs> I was hoping we'd get a little later. I haven't even talked about talking to the body. But if you want to do this, we'll fucking do this. No, I think Everard did nothing wrong. Okay, I'm of the opinion that which nothing wrong. Are we yeah, I was gonna say, are about? we talking about the assassination of the previous <laughs> that's not proven. leader? That's not proven. Hold yes, on. it is. No, he I never. Confessed. That wasn't canon in my in my <laughs> game. All right. Yeah, that's not something so, that happened to me. My th- here's, I, I, so even even putting away, even putting aside the assassination of the previous leader of the Dock Workers Union, or whatever he did to her. Let me ask you um, this: Was she an enemy of the people? No. Was she an enemy of the Debauders Union? It depends on who you ask. Eh, Everard mean, is the Everard is of the opinion that she was because she was like soft on negotiations. I thought she was going to lose anyway, though. Did she have to die? Well, <laughs> anyway, again, that, I, again, I didn't get any of that this. aside. That aside, one of one of the uh, Everard essentially asks you to do favors for him as a member of the Revachal Citizens Militia, which is the police force you work for, to make it look like the police are cooperative with the union. Ever Everard is essentially one of the main information guys in Revachal. And so talking to him gives you insight into why the union is striking insight into Harry's personal life and what he has done in Revachal since he has been like before his case of amnesia information about the political systems and what's going on in the world. And, and, so, and what's what's the first thing he has you do? Sit in a chair. That is true. It's that a very uncomfortable chair. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. It's a very uncomfortable chair. <laughs> oh, I died in that chair. <laughs> I had a heart attack in that thing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with making you sit in a chair. He just wants to meet you on equal terms. That's yeah. all. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. So the 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 first like big thing he has you do is he wants you to go open a door. Very simple task. Nothing wrong with that. I open lots of doors. As a show of force, what I would consider as a show of force that uh, the union has access 
to your house, which is a terrifying concept. Oh, hold on. The person that he's harassing is a fascist. You don't know that at Based. the time. Based. You don't know that. <laughs> you can know that if you decide you to wait can. till day three. But you don't. Based. Well, at least I didn't when I... The second big thing that Everett has you do is he sends you to this fishing village. Let's call it what it is. Shantytown. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it. To get the adults there to agree to a youth center being built directly next to their homes. Urban development based. And the idea is that the construction noise will push those people out of their homes and force them to like go live in what are better housing, but based. those people also don't want to leave. Incredibly based. Well, the 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 grandmother doesn't. Mason, yeah. you're you are literally you are advocating for gentrification. He's right giving now. them free you better are. housing. <laughs> they don't You want understand it. this is not gentrification. They don't it's want not it. gentrification. He's giving them better accommodations for free and a new urban youth center. Okay? I forged this. Incredibly. Yeah. Here's you the forged for them? Yeah. You forged them and you're looking down on me for gentrification <laughs> forgery? Yeah, so that he can't have Those people didn't even it. have a yeah. say. So the, here's the thing for me, right? Is realistically the only person in the fishing village that wants to stay there is the matriarch. What's her the washerwoman? The washerwoman. She's really the only one that wants to stay here. She's old. Yep. Just wait for her to die. Yep. And then everyone else will probably leave willingly. Mm-hmm. Yep. But you can't just force people out of their homes. Even if you are saying that you're going to promise someone out of their a better life, right? He was not going to force them out of the, their homes. He literally is trying to force he them out of their homes. He is trying <laughs> to make their doing. living conditions bad enough so that it convinces them to better their own situation. That's forcing. That That's is, not forcing. Man, that really sounds like some pulling yourself up by some bootstraps. Oh my God. What do you mean? <laughs> He's giving them for free. For free better housing. I, I don't I can't believe you I, that is not what I got from this that. is I what did you get, get what I got from this was that he was just he was theoretically going to build a community center that was going to make it so they couldn't live there anymore and they had nowhere to go where is this better housing coming from he wasn't building housing he, I, he, he said to me that part of the urban center was going to be affordable housing and uh, that they I, were going to be able did, to live there I did not hear that like I straight up like I read everything that was not said to me. Did he did he tell you that? He said that at, I remember that the the idea is that after the community center is built it provides people with better jobs and with better jobs eventually people will be able to he will be able to afford to build like housing for people. I don't think it was uh, a part of the community center itself. It was something he was planning on doing. It was separately. like a long-term plan. Yeah. I think Everard in general does good things Mm -hmm. i think he has the the idea of everett to me is that because because this whole disco elysium as a whole is the idea that you're meeting all these people with very strong grasps of political ideology but they're flawed in some way that leaves holes in their in what they're doing so everett is like the idea is he's a quote unquote man of the left. He he that's how he brands himself. 
you know, he is the leader of a union and he's trying to make all these changes that will genuinely make life for better for people. But the issue is the way he conducts himself does not is not conducive to the political systems he wants to bring into place. Yeah. If you are someone who wants to like do bring in like social systems, you can't force those on people the way that Everard does try to sometimes like he has, he's that he's an idea guy. He has great ideas, but he has bad plans. I think is the way I would. I also personally question his intentions on some things because I do think he wants what is best for the union, but he also seems pretty selfish and a little bit abusive of some specific people to try to get them to be on his side. Yeah. I am specifically thinking about the little guy who you meet before you go into Everard's thing. What is his name? I, I believe I think you're talking about Easy Leo, right? Yeah, Leo. And also, I understand that this was for the benefit of the community, but the fact that he got lawyer lady, who we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. That's a whole just, other can of worms. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, like, paid for her college just yeah. so she could be a personal union lawyer. Yeah. I think he is... I don't know. It, I also... So, question i don't know so the question becomes is it okay to do morally questionable things if that you're trying to get to it a a a justifiable outcome do the means justify the ends yes exactly i'm not saying they i'm not i'm not going to say they do or they don't in this particular instance i don't i don't believe it's so ponder on it i don't believe it's so black and white i think the means and the end both have a moral weight that you can, it's not always that bad means will always make an end unjust. I think, I think you weigh out both. So let me put it to you this way. If Everard were to, if in Everard's letter, it was not just the permission to build a community center, but let's say it was something more malicious, like the signing of the land over to Everard's. The, the signing of the land that those houses are built on over to Everard. Oh, Would yeah. Do you still that's, find that justifiable? No, that'd be terrible. Especially since you you basically have to emotionally manipulate the washerwoman to sign. Yeah. I, I, I See, the reason I forged the document is I couldn't do that. I, I didn't want to. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I did. I was like, think about your kids after you die. And she was like, ugh. You know, in general, in, in, in Disco Elysium, there's so many different political ideologies reflected. I think... Everard is sort of, I understand Everard's mindset the most because I think politically I do agree with a lot of his concepts, but then you find yourself in the moral, you have to like really reckon with the morals of what he does. And I love that. Absolutely. Can I talk a little bit about my first day? Yeah. So I talked with a dead body. Seeing as how Inland Empire was my uh, signature skill, Harry's imagination tends to run wild. And when I approached the body to start getting it down, I had to force back, vomit, couldn't do it, had to go get help to not vomit. Eventually, I was able to confront the body and it started speaking to me. It spoke specifically through the Inland Empire voice, so it's very clear that it's your imagination talking to you. The body told me that it was love that did him in. 
mind you, he is telling you this from a noose. So it seems immediately clear that love is, in fact, not what did him in. It was probably the noose. He also tells you that, like, he has traveled the world and he has, like, a lust for revenge. It says, he says all kinds of things to you. I went through this too, and I, I, I never really reflected on any of this, mainly because I started playing this game in October and it's January now, y'all. But I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, but I'm like, just I'm resonating with what you're saying. Since this was my playthrough, having full perspective mm-hmm. really changes the way you see a lot of it. On your first playthrough, towards the end of the game, 40 hours later, it's very hard to think about what the dead body said. Mm-hmm. Coming into it with the full knowledge and understanding like the full grip of how i get i guess like the only thing i could liken it to is how good of a detective harry is on instinct alone because this is this is his own brain talking to him and he just looks at it and he's like oh yeah this was like clearly a crime of passion this guy's like a violent guy and something really messed up happened and he gets that from looking at a guy hanging from a noose who's the enemy of a union going on strike who's been hanging there dead for a week yeah something that like on its face anyone else would say This was clearly a dispute between the union and the company, not some sort of crime of passion. Nothing fucked up happened. This was a display of force by the union. Harry just like strolls up and he's like, "Eh, no, this is what happened. It's crazy. And like, you don't, you can't even like wrap your head around what it is or why he's saying it on your first playthrough. It's it's the same. Not until later. Not until later. There's so many things that this game sets up in the first, you know, couple days that pay off huge later on and in a lot of cases in ways you would never expect them to. When y'all talked to Clausia, did she say, by the way, I didn't do it? Yeah. I saw a playthrough where that happened, yes. Crazy. Crazy. That she's like, in five days, this is going to matter. Just yeah. trust and, me. And I think the biggest weight of that line is just... That you don't know just the kind of the weight of her saying. Like, I'm surprised she can say it so casually. Yeah. You know? Buck, you want to talk a little more about your day one? Yeah. So. Besides Kuno. Yeah. So the other things that I did on day one was I spoke to a little girl who was selling books outside of a bookstore. They they sell books about uh, famous people, crime stories, <laughs> and... It's the last thing. Romance, right? romance novels. Romance yeah, romance novels. novels. <laughs> you talk to this girl, and eventually you figure out that this is a very nice girl, and you figure out that you've been talking to her before while you were on your uh, three-day bender. One of the cuter, funnier things that I think of, you know, like it's a little bit more lighthearted in this <laughs> very heavy topics, is she asks you to do a detective thing. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're a detective. Dude, and do some Dick Mullen stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and you work out that she's cold. And, you know, you eventually what you do is you convince her mom to not use her child for child labor. At least a little bit. Because her her mom, whose name is... Plaisance. Plaisance. Literally keeps her from going to school. I don't know what the real reason for keeping her from going to school is. Probably superstitious. Yeah, it we'll could be do. some kind of QAnon thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's a joke. There's no, um, but like that, I don't know. That's like a very interesting cultural thing to me because it wasn't that long ago 
maybe two generations where that was very common even in my family is you quit school early and you just go help the family business you know like there's that's not like super out of place to a lot of people who are even still alive today even though now we have much more modern views on things like child labor and things like that some people view that as just like oh she's just helping the family business you know she's just chipping in yeah, and I think that's actually how she sees it. But also, she's a little girl, like, like very young, right? Uh, I she's probably like ten, right? Yeah. So, you know, her hawking books out in the cold is not the best, in my opinion. But yeah, I like that little girl. What else did I do on the actual first day? So, I guess the last thing I'll talk about on the first day is I went and talked to Joyce. Oh, Joyce! <laughs> I do like Joyce a lot personally. She gave me money. She did. She gave me a lot of money. <laughs> she gave me exactly as much money as I owed to Garth. Yep. <laughs> I ruled. So Joyce is the company representative that is here. She's in Revachol staying on a yacht. More of a sloop, but... Yeah, I guess it is a sloop. It's a yacht in... Her word. <laughs> Compared to all the boats that everyone else has, it's a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> She is someone who you can talk to to get a grip on reality, because we didn't talk about the lady that you assaulted. When you talk to the lady in the wheelchair, Lena, we'll, we'll get more into her in a later day, because her story is relevant then. You talk to her about your amnesia, you can talk to her about your amnesia a bit, and she says, well, you gotta get a grip on reality, uh, maybe talk to a rich person. And uh, the rich person the game is referring to there is Joyce. So you can talk to Joyce about what's going on. Joyce is where you find out the man who was murdered is part of a, a military police organization. <laughs> a military police corporation. Yeah. <laughs> For hire military police. Yeah. You find out that they're also looking into it, and you can talk to Joyce about getting a grip on reality, which I don't really want to talk about just yet, because the actual grip on reality you get is much later in the game. Yeah. But she does fill you in on a whole bunch of relatively easy-to-understand things, and then she says, I can't give you more information unless you show me your badge, which is another later thing. Yeah. You can you can convince her otherwise. Oh, you can. I did not do that. Uh, you can start doing Joyce's quests. Oh, gosh. There's so much stuff I didn't do. <laughs> yeah, hey, I'm the same way. I, we play, I think we played a very similar first playthrough, but like, you can start investigating the union for Joyce, mm -hmm. try and pin things on them, and then she'll be like, ah, oh, well, I'll make an exception for the badge this one time. Even though Kim is like, hey, man, just like lie to her. Just like don't. Kim's like, this is a bad idea. We're not going to be her puppet. Joyce is, Joyce is awesome. Yeah, I, I, I thought I thought taking money was enough corruption. So uh, <laughs> no, Even I, I did like just about everything for everyone who asked on my second playthrough, <laughs> and it gets crazy the type of stuff that you can get into. So before before we get too deep into anything else, why why don't we all go over our moments and you can kind of explain the context as needed. This is a really long game. There's a lot in it, so we're not going to get to everything. So let's just let's just dive into our moments and then we can kind of cover the big stuff we feel like needs to be talked about. You know, start us off, Buck? Yeah, sure. My actual moment where I'll say like I really started jiving with Harry was trying to convince Plaisance to let me into her back room so that I could get to the freezer to freeze the body. <laughs> 
And I just started saying exactly what she wanted to hear. I am a Ghostbuster. I'm going to take care of these spirits. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Because <laughs> you gotta. Yeah. I really started understanding what this game was about then, I think. And I have one other moment that I would... Pers- uh, sorry to double up. Oh, no. I, it's understandable. Super honestly. understandable with this game. But... I feel like if I don't talk about this here, we are literally never going to talk about it because I don't think it's story relevant at all. I don't even know. I don't even remember what part of the game this came up in, but there is a part of the game where you and Kim are talking about your guns Uh and you can, you talk about how police have muzzle loaded pistols. You have to pack it in, do everything, aim, shoot. And you can say, I like it, makes you think about every shot. And you can go into learning and understanding that weapon control has been relatively successful. You know, cops don't have military weapons. Most people don't have military weapons. And violence as a use of force is actually taken relatively seriously by, if we're ignoring the revolution... I mean, <laughs> that was an act of war. Yeah, that was a war. Yeah, that was yeah, a war, so it's it, not really the it, same. But, like, in peacetime, yeah. the authority figures are held to a certain standard that I just wish maybe we had in the real world a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. In, in America, at least. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get, D, D is, like, packed with small little details like that. It's, like, world, it's world building in a way that... It, feels very natural which is super nice all right i'm gonna go into mine throughout the game you can get thoughts that it seems very obvious specifically relate to harry's ex-wife the game is very upfront about this your brain refers to the painful ex something it's very obvious that's a wife you can think about some of the thoughts you can gain are like her name the smell of her breath right? Things like that. You can think about her a lot like that. Eventually you end up for what seem like unrelated reasons, learning about the religion of the people of Revishal. They are DeLorean. They revere Dolores Day, who is this high holy figure and said to be incredibly beautiful and terrifying are the two main attributes. These, every time you learn about your ex-wife and every time you learn about religion, they seem to be intertwined to Harry personally and all of that comes to a head at the end of the game at the very 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 end of the game you can take a nap you're given the choice to take a nap during which Harry can dream and sees a vision of the day that he last saw his ex-wife leaving the continent leaving him behind Uh, she appears to him as a visage of Dolores Day and it all comes like crashing down why these things were so personally intertwined to him which is that he saw his ex-wife as the most beautiful and terrifying creature ever he likened her to dolores day and she left him and he still loves her and she delivers like some of the most like cruel and thoughtless remarks but it's just harry dreaming Mm -hmm. it's not it's probably not what was actually said but it's clear how deeply and personally 
a breakup that happened five or six years ago has destroyed Harry mentally and probably will for the rest of his life. I've seen that scene. I've taken that naps both times and both times it has made me cry. It is gut wrenching. The second time I knew exactly what was going to happen and it still made me cry. It was, it's so hard to watch. It makes me imagine a world where I break up with my fiance, where I have to deal with loss like that. And, and, It's not like I've ever had a loss like that in my life, but it's communicated so beautifully and and it's so touching that it it so easily sort of passes on that feeling to you. Can I ask a question about this while we're here? Because I think I might have misunderstood something. So it is definitely his ex-wife. Yes. Okay. Because there were some offhand remarks at the even further end of the game that made me think it wasn't that serious of a relationship oh or what your partner says to you like oh you were just seeing her because she wanted to fuck her because she mm-hmm. was hot like yeah. that kind of thing yeah those and i guess i might have just misinterpreted that or i think that your what's your partner's name kim wait no no, no, no you're talking the, about uh, the guy who says those things yeah you're talking about uh, your precinct partner <laughs> john luke or something uh, uh yeah yeah yeah, Jean Jean Vicmer. Yeah, I think I think Jean has like a more nihilistic worldview than Harry because he, I think he's supposed to represent Harry before the events of the game because he's like your partner, he's your likeness in the precinct, and so I think he has a different perspective on those things. But it's very clear from things that are communicated in the in the like scene, the nap scene, that they lived together. She would write notes about how she longed for him every day. She couldn't get over his inability to kind of better himself or like put himself in a position to where they could live a little more easily and then like slowly over years like fell out of love with him and then like left him. I think the best way to explain it is that Harry is an unreliable narrator when it comes to information. Mm-hmm. But Harry is an extremely reliable narrator when it comes to emotional. Right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exploration. Harry remembers how he feels about things, mm-hmm. even if he doesn't remember what things are and sometimes just like makes things up as to what they are. But when he does remember things... He remembers how he feels about them. Yeah. Did you try using the phone? Which time? The one near the docks. You would know what I was talking about. I don't think you got it. (laughs) There's a a lot of additional things that very coincidentally line up, get you new information about Harry's ex-wife. One of those things is if you go to the dock where they have the one working payphone and you dial random numbers a ton of times, eventually you can get a skill check to try and remember a number. And you dial her home number and she picks up in the middle of the night and you can talk with her just a little bit. Okay. Okay. I I actually, I know the, I know the payphone you're talking about now. I didn't use it because I'm like, I don't have any phone numbers to call. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to sneak in two moments as well because there, there are two moments that I love for very different reasons. So the first moment I think is, is my simpler one. And it is when you wake up the morning after the tribunal and the tribunal is the climax of the game. Well, one of the climaxes of the game. There's about four. Yeah. (laughs) Where essentially you have a big standoff 
with the warring factions of the union and the band of mercenaries that were hired to like manage the union. And you, you know, a number of people die depending on how you play out the scenario. But when you wake up, you know, three days later after you've recovered from your injuries and you step outside, there is this big mural that's been painted onto the grounds by this character named Cindy the Skull who you meet. And she's kind of, she's played as a sort of artist of like a rebellious artist. You know, she goes around and she paints, you know, the ideas of rebellion and, you know, bringing back what was lost when the rebellion was squashed the those paint, years ago. The the paint that she uses is viscous red oil yeah. siphoned from yeah. police vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you step out and you see this big block of text and it's in French. So if, unless you speak French, you don't know what it says. And on my first playthrough i didn't get this option but on my second playthrough after you learn that it says you know one day i will return to your side which is apparent which i've been told is uh from an a real an real life poem about revolution or you know something along those lines you are given the option because you can smell the gasoline to light the whole thing on fire <laughs> And you kind of, you do, I did, and you just sit there as it burns away the gasoline that is mixed with the paint. And there's just, it's this like tranquil moment of watching something burn after this very traumatic experience. It's so small, but so impactful just because you've gone through what you think is like going to be one of the hardest experiences you'll have in the game as a character. And just to wake up to see these like words of, you know, rebellion to see these words that, you know, things will, you know, turn out. And then just to sit there watching it be ablaze is very, there's something very visceral about a moment like that in a game. My other moment is something they did with world building. So as part of your investigation, quote unquote, you try to get this group of anodic dance guys into this old church so that they can turn it into a club. And you fast forward, you have to like convince this engineer woman that, you know, to let them come into the church and to do so you have to help her with this investigation that she's doing. You end up doing a ton of stuff for these yeah. guys. This is yeah. a very long It's a quest. very long quest. But at the end of it, she's trying to figure out what caused a data loss that caused a company that she was working for to just lose everything. Or essentially overnight, all of the work that this company had done just was gone. There was no bat, and like the backup that they had also had all of its data gone. And so she's like sitting in this church trying to figure out what happened. And so what ends up happening is you play the scene where 
you and capture the sound of what is going on above you and it is just this horrific like rumbling and at first it's like it you you as a player are trying to piece together like what it could possibly be and there's this really hard logic check you have to make to figure it out and you're like actually that's a two millimeter hole in the world that is and she's like what do you mean that and you're like that is the beginning of the pale and the pale is something that gets alluded to a lot in other places of the game and it's hard to explain without going into like great detail but the pale in essence is the thing that is between existence and oblivion the pale exists as a gradient of sorts between the world that we exist in and nothingness. It, it's kind of like the blind eternities if yeah. you play magic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, if you want to think about it that way. <laughs> and so you learn that Harry like actually studied this stuff when he was younger. He had an interest in it. And so you, it, it, this is the moment that you like you're living in a dot like a literally a dying world you were living in a world like the pale is something that people have had to escape from on this world it is something that people fear and that the church you are in was built as a safety measure to try to trap that two millimeter hole in the world inside of this building to keep it from escaping and there's something and it's just so because it doesn't have anything to do with literally anything of the central plot of the game of like solving this murder or whatever. Or any of the secondary or tertiary no, plots. You, this you is, have it to is, do so many side things together to yeah, get to this point. <laughs> it is strictly a world building moment, but it is so beautiful because of how horrifying it is. Like the reality of this is like, you know, when you think about our reality, it's like, okay, well, this is like the equivalent of like, they're experiencing the heat death of the universe just in real time. And it's, it's horrifying and it's terrifying, but it's just such a beautiful moment of world building where like you and the characters you're surrounded with have to come to terms with you are in a place that is doomed and like doomed like soon doomed like a commercial district. Yeah. Like a big, (laughs) big old office building. So those, those are, those are my moments. So I only got that on my second playthrough. You would not tell me about it no matter how hard I asked. Like, that made me think so much about the church because in the game you can learn that that church is one of seven that were set up along the coast. It's the only one still standing. Harry has the thought like, oh, are there seven holes in the world? There's things that aren't really addressed in any of the texts that I was thinking about. Like, was the hole always two millimeters? Yeah. Maybe it's a million times bigger than when they built the church is the hole smaller than when it came by? Can the pale be like combated? You know, you think about the fact that you learn that the pale, you can like exist within it, but it very quickly drives you mad. Yeah. And you'll just like die of like a, a horrendous insanity. Yeah. So a little, a little later in the game, you have this encounter with the woman who you think might have committed the murder. And she has built a machine that, harnesses the pale through radio waves and uses like weaponizes it and it it is physically damaging to your body it is crazy also a horrifying thing 
that in order to just evade you, she's willing to just like blast some pale out into the world. Yeah. Like she's willing to, to doom the world just like a tiny little bit more. Yeah. Just to like fucking get away from you. Yeah. Her name is Ruby in case you, you're trying to follow along, following along and trying to draw connections. She so. is pivotal. Yeah, so let's 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 just get into like some big big things that we want to talk about. They don't necessarily have to be the you know along the main story, and I want to keep the ending stuff towards the last mm-hmm. things we talk about. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know, big big topics, any big topics y'all want to talk about? Can I talk about Ruby? Yeah, can we I? We're already here. Boys first, huh? What about the Hardy Boys? Because that's how we. You know what? That's fair. That's a fair <laughs> point. That'll be a good. That'll be a good transition to Ruby. <laughs> Tell, uh, tell us about the Hardy Boys. So the Hardy Boys are a group of union workers who you highly suspect to be involved in the murder of this man. Where it's they tell you, as yeah, such. they tell they you, tell, they tell they you, they confess yeah. openly, yeah. And so you know, you interact with these guys, and Hardy, I can't remember his first name, but Hardy Titus. is Titus. Titus Hardy is the main guy who you are interacting with. And he's like the big, strong, buff guy of the group. And there are a bunch of other, you know, different kinds of guys. But one of the... And and so you interact with these dudes. And effectively, they are the law in Revishal when you are not there. You talk to these guys for a bit, and it's a little bit too easy for them to just admit that they did it. Yeah. Right? Of course. Through investigating the body, one of the things that you can find out is that the man was not hanged. Well, he was. He well, was hanged. <laughs> sorry. Literally. He didn't die of the hanging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you find a tiny hole in the world. We already talked about this. <laughs> Are we, we retreading again? In or? this dude's neck. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, in the back of the his back mouth. of his mouth, and you're like, "Wait, this dude didn't die from hanging." And you show them the bullet, and so effectively, what the Hardy guys were really doing was trying to cover up what theoretically might have really happened. Which they do send you on a bit of a goose chase between them and Klausia, because Klausia turns out really liked the guy who was murdered. Now, the first thing the Hardys tell you is that the guy sexually assaulted Klausia, and you go talk to Klausia, that's not the case. And you go back and forth between the Hardy Boys for a while. Basically, the Hardy Boys are like, well, this, and then Klausia's like, no, this. No, yeah, no. <laughs> I don't feel as qualified to talk about all the different things with Klausia, but to talk about Ruby, if you have a high enough visual calculus, there is a thing that's really on your mind the whole time you're talking to the Hardy boys. And that is who is the missing Hardy? Because there's a specific, <laughs> you know, Harry being the intensely effective detective that he is, he says there's X number of footprints and only Y number of Hardy boys. Where is the missing Hardy boy? And as you get through this, Klausia eventually concedes to you that, hey, I maybe might have almost had a fling with this girl, Ruby, and you find out she is the missing Hardy Boy. Sure do. I love the Hardy Boys. The Hardy Boys are great. <laughs> cool. Ti- yeah. Titus is Titus is such an incredible character because he he really you can tell he really cares about this like group of guys that mm-hmm. he's assembled. He even though he is willing to throw all of them collectively as a group under the bus 
Just well, to... it's just a legal tactic, right? Yeah, yeah. What no, what yeah. he's doing is essentially following the lawyer's orders. Yeah. Just like, say this. If it comes out, that's a lie. Say this. If it comes out as a lie, say this. Yeah. Until you're backed in a corner. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Titus is just... Titus is like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the idea is that the main characters in this game are like reflective of different political ideologies. But Titus is just like the common man. Mm-hmm. He's working mm-hmm. class. Yeah. He just wants to protect, you know, he's like a guy who like actually just wants to protect his house and home and the people that he cares about. And, you know, he's willing to do what he has to do to fulfill that. And it's great. I, I love him. I love Titus. I lo- In my second playthrough, I actually got his respect. And like you get an achievement for like earning his respect and like being getting to shake his hand. I'm surprised. I never got that. Can I talk about Ruby a little bit? So Ruby, ultimately at the end of a long series of events, ends up taking kind of the fall for the murder among all the people who were immediate witnesses. It's not super clear that that's what's happened, but based on all of the evidence that you can collect, it seems like the most likely scenario that she snuck up and killed this guy and then staged the hanging. You can track her down. She's hiding in this uh, old abandoned building. She shoots at you with her pale compressor thing to try and kill you so she can make a getaway, or at least talk to you for a while without you arresting her. The first time I played through the game, I was able to turn off the pale compressor, talk to Ruby about everything that I needed to talk to with regards to her relationship to Clausia, what happened the night of the murder, the hanging... Realizing that she's sort of at the end of her rope, Ruby will eventually point her gun to her head and say, like, well, I had a good ride. And I was able to talk her down on my first playthrough. And it felt really good because I had one more lead to follow. It seemed very clear that she wasn't the responsible party. And Kim, like, commends you on, like, good detective work. My second playthrough, I did Joyce Messier's side quest. So I had some extra dialogue with Ruby about how I know that she's been running drugs, which I was able to use to get an easier check to turn off the pale compressor. The pale compressor went easier. However, it was harder to talk her down when she pointed her gun to herself. I wasn't able to do it. She will shoot herself if you can't think of anything. Yeah, that's and, what I, that's exactly what happened to me on my first and second playthroughs as well. And she's just, she's dead. And like, there's so much, she could have, like, she didn't do anything wrong. She was running out of fear. And, and you were responsible solely, you are responsible for her killing herself. Well, it's and a, like, the impo- it's also important in context that Ruby is specifically afraid of Harry. Exactly what I was she, say. she describes, <laughs> you know, she describes Harry as the human can opener where she can get anyone to talk about anything that he wants them to talk about. She also believes that he is working for a criminal overlord in in the police district that Harry works for. She she's of she is of the belief that he is on the take from this like mafia style. Is it ever made clear how Harry garnered his reputation that reached all the way down to Martin Aves? How she heard of him? He's just really, just really good detective. I mean, he, he, you do find out like it, it, when you look deep into like your files and stuff. Kim explains to you that you have solved like a hundred and something yeah. cases, which is effectively impossible for yeah. a normal person. Yeah, you're like one of you're just like 
one of the best detectives that the RCM has, like bar none. He's just like very efficient. I think it's really interesting that it's never made clear whether or not you are working for the mafia. Mm-hmm. You're, you want to believe, you're led to believe that you don't. Yeah. When oh, you, y'all didn't. If you, if you ask about it at the end, you're effectively told, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I was told. Yeah. You're like, I, no, absolutely but, you're not. No, that's, and that's what I mean is like, Jean's like, yeah, you would not, you would never work for them. But, I'm, but there's always like a, there's like a seed of doubt in my yeah, mind. Yeah, I think that's like, not super clear. I it's agree. possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I just think that's interesting. Harry has done worse. Yeah, exactly. He did threaten to kill a bunch of people. Uh, something I want to talk about, there's, there are like two main, like kind of side, mostly side things I want to talk about. The first one being the drunks. In the fishing village, yeah. It, I what an, an interesting, fascinating. Yeah. So the interesting thing about this group of characters is all of their names are just reflections of the people that they think that they are. So, for example, uh, the leader of their group is Idiot Doom Spiral, and Idiot, that's his, that's his name. That's how he's referred, yeah. Idiot Doom Spiral, and Idiot Doom Spiral is called that because if you ask him his life story and provide him with enough alcohol, he explains to you that he used to be a very successful business person and then like one day everything went wrong and now I'm an alcoholic out on the street. And when you listen to it as like a regular person, it just sounds absolutely insane. And then there's also Don't Call Abigail, who's just... It's interesting to me. I, I think Don't Call Abigail is my favorite out of the group because I think all three, or at least Idiot Doom Spiral and Don't Call Abigail, are meant to be reflections of Harry. Yes. At different yes. parts of his alcoholism, where like Don't Call Abigail is like Harry when he's like despondent about his ex wife, and Idiot Doom Spiral is about just like all of the insane crazy things that he does while he is under the influence idiot doom spiral even like commends you on a good job for on your three-day bender like crashing your car and announcing yourself to the world as tequila sunset yeah and he'll be like oh yeah that's a that's a, a classic one and i just it's so, it's so smart to have that that group of individuals there as a way for the player to understand what Harry is like during his benders because you're not actually given the opportunity to show the players what it's like. And it's just what an incredibly smart way to do that because it's not as if those characters don't feel like real or grounded within the world. They don't feel like they're just meant to be, you know, showing you some other aspect it's like a conclusion you have you come to as you understand harry more as a person actually lied there's two more things i want to talk about there's a lot yeah there's a lot but there's 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 like a few specific things i want to hit on before we get you know before we eventually talk about the ending i love the scene with the pigs yes so so One of the things that you have to do is reclaim your gun. This is like a very, very important thing that you should do before you reach the tribunal. Because if you don't have your gun in the tribunal, things go very bad. And so Everard tells you that your gun 
is with a woman at the docks and you know, you can find her between these hours. And so the only hours that you can go find her is between 10 PM and 2 AM. And if you go there, you find this woman who refers to herself as the pigs and it's never really made exactly clear what is wrong with her, but it's obviously she has some kind of neurological disorder where she has convinced herself that she is a police officer and has bought all of this police equipment from a pawn shop and strapped it to herself and now she has a gun. So now so now you're like dealing with a situation where you know this and this is like a situation that happens a lot in real life, right? Where the police are in a situation with an armed individual who is, you know, mentally disturbed. How what do you do to defuse the situation? Now, you know, in the game you get lucky and the gun's not loaded. So you're able to disarm her but you know she she is despondent when she because she believes that police guns are supposed to have bullets in them so to her the fact that there's it's not loaded is like world shattering and it's just so heartbreaking to see this woman who has been left behind by society and just left to her own devices and with her own devices, like this is the world that she has sculpted for herself. Yeah. And you do eventually get to talk to Titus and like Titus knows how to like get the people to help her. But it's just like that. It hurts in that moment. I want to point out that I do really like that the game lets you go talk to Titus about her. It's like, you know, you're like, this is not why I'm here and not my domain and I'm not going to overreach. Y'all, y'all take care of this. It's incredible. Yeah. (laughs) Pigs is like, even in a world full of sad characters, the pigs is like one of the saddest. Yeah. Because it's like in any just world, even in our real, very unjust world, this person would have a profound amount of care given to them every day. And, and like in this war torn post-apocalyptic like hell, Mm -hmm. she's just like, She's just like left to left to wander. Mm-hmm. Be this like antisocial, dangerous. Lives literally in refuse, essentially. Yeah. And like the, the wreckage of a torn down, blown up amusement park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just. And so the, the other big thing I want to talk about is really this. This was the first thing in this game that really hammered into me how much setup this game does. And this is what we were talking about earlier. So on day like two, you go over to the bookstore and you meet working class woman. And you're like, hey, I get the feeling that your husband is dead. And she's like, what? Yeah, he's missing. Your husband is missing. And it's just your inland empire telling you this. It's like your imagination is telling you this. And it's like, you need to go comfort this woman because her husband is missing. Fast forward, you know, you're not allowed to access, you don't get to access the entire left side of the map until day three because the water lock has to get fixed because you broke it. (laughs) So you get across the water, you know, you're doing your exploration or whatever. Eventually you walk out onto this pier and you find a corpse. And 
you know, you do your due diligence, you investigate the body, you determine a, you know, a cause of death, you get someone to come out and take the body to a, a morgue, um, so that, you know, things can get properly taken care of for as far as arrangements. And on the body, you find a library card for Billy Machine. And so you go back to Kim's car and call the library and get the information. And eventually you get the information of an apartment and you go visit the apartment and it is the woman that you told her husband was missing. Before you could even know. And you do this. And the thing is that dialogue you have with her is just on a whim. It's you, a bit. It's a it's bit. A, it's you, a bit. You think, you think it's, you're just kind of playing it as a joke, but you knock on that door to her apartment and she responds and the world, you just collapse. Like me physically as a player is like <laughs> the reality of that situation is like, fuck. Yeah. It's like breathing down your neck. Yeah. You, know? you can't escape it because you're the one responsible for this. Yeah. What made that scene really hurt for me is like, when I first stumbled on the corpse, my one of my skills was like, you know what this is, right? And I was like, oh, God, it's the working class woman's husband. And yet, excruciatingly, you have to do the entire report. You have to follow the lead. And I knew, I knew what, what waited at the end because your brain literally tells you like, you know, who, you know whose husband this is. And like, you can't, you can't escape from it because you know at the end is the working class woman. And, and and you get to her and she, I mean, it's just hard. that that scene is heartbreaking where you're just having to tell her what happened. And in my first playthrough, I was not able to have Harry tell her what happened. And then in my second playthrough, I was able. And so, and there's like the little differences where it's like just being able to like do the things that you're supposed to do as a as a you know police officer in this dying world is so difficult. And it's just everything just feels so magnified because of the thing. Like, it seems like this should be a place where, as you know, as a player approaching this game and coming from, you know, what we consider like an average world and going into this world that is post-apocalyptic and very dire, you would think that, you know, you, you eventually you kind of fall into this idea that like bad things just happen here. But you really don't have any true moments of like full on grief from people in the game until that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, people, the people that you come across are angry or, you know, just trying to make things work or doing the best that they can. There's not really any grieving. You know, there's people that wish the revolution had worked out, and there there are people that like, you know, fought in the war and lost. But there isn't, other than like some glimpses of Harry from his past. This is the first time that you really feel grief, and it's crazy that this is really the first moment that you are impacted by it. So, fun fact: I didn't talk to that lady and find that out. Like really, you, yeah. I, I I just found the body and let her know about the body. I didn't know about the Inlet Empire thing, so that's interesting to know. Yeah, <laughs> it's 
It's fucking brutal, dude. Because the conversation you have with her at the beginning is so funny. Because she's just like, you're just like, hey, your husband's missing, maybe dead. And she's like, no, no, I I saw him yesterday. He's not. Go away, please. And you and you're just persisting. You're just like, Mm-mm, no, no. I have a, I have this feeling. You see, I looked at you. I saw a working class woman. I thought that guy, that woman has a working class husband. He's missing, probably dead somewhere. Where is he right now? Do you know where he is right now? You're like literally like a school child, you know, like inter- interrogating someone. It's it's crazy. So <laughs> there is one huge, massive thing we need to talk about before we talk about the end of the game. Yeah. What's that? Crypto zoology. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I honestly, I really wanted to talk about. That's why I wanted to talk about the foreshadowing bit because as we talk about the cryptozoologists, <laughs> talk about things that are played off for bits. <laughs> My. God. When, Buck, I, Buck, when after Buck is done talking, I want you to tell him about my first playthrough. Do you remember what I did? Yeah. Oh my God. Buck, I want Buck. Why don't you explain the cryptozoologists? Okay. Can I get the husband's name real quick? Morel. Morel. Yeah. Morel. Okay. So Lena, the woman who you have the opportunity to knock out of her wheelchair at the beginning of the game, is labeled as the cryptozoologist's wife. You can talk to her about awesome cryptozoology. Kim is a little bit of a stickler and doesn't and, want you to and ask. For, for reference, for those at home, cryptozoology is if you know what a cryptid is. It's like the study of like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, Mothman, things of that nature. Colloquially, like the study of mythical creatures. Generally considered to be a pseudoscience, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, you can talk to her about all of these things. And, you know, my Harry was really into it. Who who wouldn't be? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, you can talk to these people. And these people are generally nice. I don't know much about the crypto fascist. I never really talked to him. (laughs) Oh, Gary. Uh, (laughs) But uh, Lena? Yeah, Lena. And and Moral are fairly nice people. Moral is like a old grizzled Steve Irwin type, except for fake animals. And... You know, you can do a side quest for them, and it Kim starts to get into it. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Not much, but a little Mostly bit. Mostly sarcastically. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly he'll just tell you, like, can we get back to work? Yeah. <laughs> Dork. And, you know, you get to do all these things for them and talk to them about all these things. And there is... You, you talk to them, and they're starting to lose faith by the end of the quest. Um, you are looking for a very specific cryptid... Who I can't remember what the it Insulindian is. Insulindian phasmid. Yeah, the Insulindian phasmid, who Lena definitely thinks she saw as a kid. But y'all have been trying all this stuff. None of it's working. Yep, and that's the end of it. You can't. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, you never find it. You try it. You never find it. So, it's so, like a fun bit. Yeah, Mason Mason literally spent hours. Like, hours, spent hours just going around checking the traps to see if anything would come up. Nothing ever did. Oh. It's great, and I love it because it's it's like the, about the like the futility, right? Mm-hmm. You won't, you know. I checked those fucking things morning, noon, and night yeah. every day. Yeah, and I was like, all right, for sure, they would not put all this stuff in if there was no phasmid. Yeah, but and you get the best. You get the be- like one of the best thought in the game called that's plus three perception that's insane is it's like the best one oh, in the game oh i love it so let's let's talk about the ending so eventually your investigation of the murder you know it's post-tribunal 
the city, like you've lost access to multiple parts of the city or like multiple people have like gone underground Real as quick. a result. The tribunal happens directly after your Ruby interaction. Yeah. Yeah. The Ruby, the Ru- there, you actually have a thought as you're about to go into the Ruby interaction that like your brain is like, yeah, this is the point of no return. If there are like important things you need to do, you need to go do them. So it literally goes like Ruby interaction, the tribunal, you wake up and then basically the only thing you can do is follow this last lead you had. And your visual calculus basically tells you there are three points from far away where the gunshot could have come from. And one of the points is this small island. So you take a boat out to the island and this, oh man, I cannot get over how beautiful the scene is as you're riding the boat to the island. With the boombox. With the boombox. With the boombox. And playing sad music. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good because like you feel the finality of all of the things that you are leaving behind as you boat out to the small island. And you get there and it's this old military base that is, you can tell someone has been living here. And eventually you get the doors open and you come out into the back of the island and you find this one character who is my favorite character in this entire game the deserter and the deserter is this survivor of the revolution he is called the deserter because when things got hairy during the revolution he left he deserted his post and left and now and has deep deep regrets about the things that he did but now considers him, he considers himself an active member of the revolution. He believes that the revolution never ended. I guess we should add a little context there. When we say that the world is post-apocalyptic, it's not in the usual end of the world sense. It's that you're playing on the graveyard of a mass, like an enormous battle 50 years ago. Yeah. That was a communist revolution. Yeah. So this guy like went AWOL during that. Yeah. So he's like 70 or something. Yeah. He's old. He's, he's, yeah, you never really get an exact age, but essentially he believes that he is still uh, an acting member of the communist revolution. And as such, every now and then takes actions that he believes to be in line with what he should be doing. So you learn that he is the one that killed the man. Yeah. The, the mercenary. And he took a shot from very far away. He's very much an incel about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, so, the, so it's great. It's great because as you're like having this conversation with this really old man, you're like, there's a lot of things that don't add up about him being an old man. Mm. Like he's healthy. He's virile. You know, if he's having these like lust, strong emotions of like lust and like infatuation things you wouldn't necessarily place with a man of his age that has been living on his own in the wilderness for Mm -hmm. so long. Even if he does like sneak back into town to like steal stuff that won't be missed. I just, it, it, that it's crazy to me because that whole scene lasts like two hours. You talk to this man for like hours on end. You talk to him about everything and the entire events of the game. Yeah. His ideology. Yeah. And every, you hang on every word and it's, it's great because you would expect that in a game about a mystery of, of, of solving a murder that the payoff of being 
actually it was this guy completely unrelated to all of the events that you've been investigating would be incredibly stupid, but it just makes perfect sense. And it also, it also ties a bunch of side unrelated loose ends together. Yeah. yeah. Specifically, this man also is who assassinated the former union leader. He's also the person that was walking around the top floor of the whirling in rags, mm-hmm. the hostel you're in. I feel like I don't have anything really to add about the deserter. You know, it's, he t- he says my favorite line in the game. The the about the mask of capitalism. No, it's oh, okay. um because that's my favorite line. Men men without ideals are just animals. Mm-hmm. That's that's I think the most poignant line in the game. I love the I fucking love the deserter man. You know, one of the uh, benefits of the deserter conversation is you get a lot of experience during it. You sure do. You get get, four level ups. You do get four level ups. Just talking to him. Uh, And, you know, with those four level ups, when you get to a specific white check in the conversation... (laughs) You can try it four times. Well, you can. But what I did, because I was at the end of the game, I kind of wanted to be done. I just exited. Well, no, actually, you know what? You're right. You can try it four times. That is what I did. Yeah. Which <laughs> which check was this? It was like why why he's still kicking around check? Oh, actually, maybe it's a red check. Do you know the check I'm talking about? I don't. Remind me. It's a perception check. That one. Yeah, okay. I do know what you're talking about. Is it red or white? It's uh, red. So it is a red check. But I was able to go into my menu, put... All four of those skill points into perception. into perception. Stacked with Koldamama Dakwa. Stacked with Koldamama Dakwa. Yeah. Now you have like so a plus nine. The the quote the quote is the mask of humanity fall from capital. It has to take off to ki- it has to take it off to kill everyone. Everything you love, all the hope and tenderness in the world. It has to take it off just for one second to do the deed. Yeah. And it's like, oh, as someone who is like lives in a cap, very capitalistic society, just like the very staunch reminder that capital has to do so little to take everything away from you mm-hmm. is God, that line just hits so hard. There's a lot of like the deserters dialogue that hits, but it makes me wonder how much of how much of reflective of the author's or like the the head writer's philosophy is mirrored mm-hmm. in the deserter you know a lot of disco elysium is exploring the different leftist the different like sliding scale of the leftism ideologies mm-hmm. where like the deserter is the very very far left you know maybe like top left authoritarian yeah type of leftism and then everard's kind of like a democratic socialist yeah a little bit more like just you know we're we're doing some leftism but like we're still like doing it and it within the bounds of like capital and stuff doing it within the bounds of like the the consent of the governed yeah i don't think the deserter would really care much about that and so i think that a lot of this game is supposed to be reflective because mine if i remember correctly the creators of this game are communist i want to say i have no clue they're i know they're they're of leftist ideology i don't know exactly where they fall within the spectrum i've done a little bit of research into it the game is very much a reflection of their idea uh, of of 
a number of their ideologies. Yeah. But I, I think the point is that you have to question. It's not, it's not good enough to just be, I'm a communist. I'm a socialist. You have to question the things that are within that ideology. So do we want to talk about the result of that perception check? <laughs> I do so badly. I checked traps for days. It was so funny. Cause in, so I, I, I played, so I played this game before Mason did. And so I knew what was at the ending. And so I watched Mason run around and check these traps and find nothing. And he was getting so fresh. And I was like, oh, well, guess you'll never find the phasma. <laughs> and I have to say, the, the what happens after your conversation with the deserter is one of the few things I would actually describe as a religious experience in a video game. Yes. Yeah. You all feel Go ahead, Buck. So... Pause from the conversation to put all of the skill points that you get from talking to the deserter into perception, and you pass the red perception check. You look up, and I thought this was a joke. I thought it was a bit. I thought it was fake. I thought it was a dream. I thought Harry died when he took the nap. Yeah. You see the Insulindian Phasmid. Yeah. It is a giant stick-ish praying mantis-ish insect it's like a it's like a water skater yeah it's like made of reeds as well and we attempted to take a picture of it and did not succeed i got the picture i got the picture both of my playthroughs oh man pictures you have to you have to comfort you have to comfort the phasmid first Uh, and like get you basically have to like build consent (laughs) <laughs> After you like exhaust all the dialogue options, it's like not even a check anymore. Oh, It'll just do I see. it. Ah, see, I didn't want to exhaust the dialogue options. I was like, oh god, it's gonna run. Yeah, no, yeah. which is a fair way to feel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does seem like it does seem that way towards the beginning of your conversation, but it'll warm up to you. It communicates to you telepathically. Oh, and then all it does is just it. It stands. I think the most beautiful thing about. The meeting of the phasmid is it stands just as in awe of you as you yeah. do of it. Oh, yeah. my God. as you talk to it about yourself, it'll say like, "No, you are the most beautiful. You are the seen. most beautiful thing. You are a miracle. Yeah. All I can do is hide from predators and eat bugs. Like that's all my brain can do. And look what all this you can do. Yeah, at <laughs> one time." I, my, one of my legs came off, one of my antenna fell off and instead I accidentally grew a leg. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. The most, the most poignant part of that dialogue is when the phasmid just talks about how much of a tour de force humanity is. Yeah. And like how afraid, so the, the, the phasmid's literally like, yeah, phasmids all over the world, all these like crypto Zoology, you know, cryptozoology creatures have been conversing about how horrifying humanity is and how the pale, which we talked about earlier, the pale didn't exist before humans came around. Yeah. Uh... Yep. The humans brought it with it, which could be related to why the church is able to contain the whole mm. or like why the pale is only at the edges of continents. I think my favorite bit of dialogue from the Phasmid is like, is when it goes... When it's like asking you not to blink because it doesn't know if when you blink, it actually goes in and out of existence. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So it's like this very like theoretical question where it's like, you know, it's like when you as a person in real life blink, 
Mm-hmm. Are are things really still there? Yeah, it's like you know, there's like very like high theory. Like it's just, it's I'm so very sad. I missed out on this. <laughs> it's it is it is. I I mean, genuinely, like a religious experience of like this entire time. Everything about the cryptozoologist has been played off as a complete joke and nonsense. And then, nope, actually, here it is. Here's the phasmid. And, and it I is. I think the best part is you make t- Kim take a picture of, her, of yeah. it after he's like, oh, let's get out of here, dude. Yeah. It's, wow. <sighs> it is life changing. And I think the, the intent is that the phasmid is just meant to represent nature. Yeah. I mean, it's, I know that's like a fairly like easy conclusion to come to. But, but it's not it's not like an antagonistic force. Yeah. It's just like it just exists. an extant thing about the world. It's just a thing that exists and would like to continue to exist. So I guess since I didn't get this conversation, is Kim's theory about the phasmid affecting the deserter off? No. No, that's it's right. Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, the phasmid ex- uh, uh, emits like a toxin that... Uh, it makes people not see it. It's yeah, how it, it camouflages itself. Yeah. But it, it, like a side result of the toxin is that it helps your cognitive function, which is so how that's the deserter, why he's... which is how the deserter appears to be so lucid. Mm-hmm. And when how when the phasmid leaves, he becomes a wreck. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. If you still have a save file near the end of the game, uh, I would I really do. encourage you to go and do that dialogue. Really talk everything yep. you can through with the phasmid. I will. Yeah. Did, did so you good. still get to see the remnants of its nest after it left? I don't think so. Because there, there's like, in in the remnants of its nest, you find like Clossier's documents. Oh. You find the helmet of the guy from the tribunal, like the big like oh, domed helmet thing. So you find like things relevant to your case that like were left. And then you get to like go back. And when you get back from your trip to the islands your partner and like some members of your precinct are there and they're like grilling you and you're like hey well i have this picture of this creature that's never been found before and one of the guys is like oh this is great pr for the police yeah <laughs> officer officer finds previously undiscovered animal yeah and it's like one of the things that helps you get back into the fold mm-hmm. of the rcm can you do so much stuff bad that you just don't get back in? Probably. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. I know that if you drink, Kim doesn't vouch for you as much. Yeah. But I didn't drink, so I just know that. One of my favorite things about my first playthrough is that, so I, I, I adopted the race realism but then like I also adopted some concepts of communism, and so at the end Kim was like, Yes, he is a communist, but at the same time, he ad- adopts some of the ideas of fascism, which seems completely at odds with yeah. himself and of an officer of the law. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I love good. the ending. This is it, it, like, I mean, there's a reason why people talk about Disco Elysium being possibly one of the best games of all time. I, th- I think it is the best game ever made. It's like, Especially from a narrative perspective. From a narrative perspective, I completely agree. Yeah. You know, the it you know, at the very, very beginning I talked about how it's kind of a visual novel. And, you know, I consider it to mostly just be a visual novel. And so it's not like there's a lot of gameplay. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, it's what's there is just so incredible. And it's just so much to digest. And the ending just really ties everything together perfectly because it, it allow the ending is both grounded in reality of letting you solve the case while also exposing you to the mysticism and the fanatical or the fantastic ideas of the world that you are living in. And I just want to mention, you know, we encourage people to play the game before they listen to this. And this is clearly full of spoilers. There are we dozens of yeah. hours of things we did yeah, not we talk, didn't about. talk about. <laughs> we didn't even talk about so much. It, it like, even if you listen to this full podcast, and you're like, oh, but I'm spoiled on the big, it doesn't matter. There's so you're many gonna get something out of it. Small things in this game, and like we didn't even talk about how great Egghead's dialogue is. Yeah, <laughs> oh, Egghead. Yeah. What so a- like, please play Disco Elysium. <laughs> I cannot sh- like. So you know, you you have to play Disco Elysium. We're begging you. We're literally begging you. It goes on sale on Steam for ten bucks, like all every all the time. Week. So, thank you all for listening. Next podcast, we will be talking about Dragon Age Origins. My first recommendation, don't actually play it. Yeah, maybe just watch <laughs> Maybe watch a playthrough. Watch a long play. We've, it's going to be so much easier for you. A few of us have started our playthroughs, and it has not aged great, I would say. Can I tell you all a funny story? I wanted to wait for the podcast to tell this. Okay. So I have a friend who was a combat medic, and he served in Iraq, and... For Christmas one year, they got an Xbox 360 and Dragon Age Origins with it. And apparently the game shipped with a bug that was day one patched where there's a story mission about halfway through the game where you talk to this guy. And when when you go into the room to talk to him, the door locks behind you. And the way it was shipped, the door doesn't unlock after you stop talking to him. So you're just stuck in the room forever. So they just had 30 save files on this base that were all in the exact same place, either talking to this dude or right before you talk to this dude. And no one could get past it. Yeah, so we'll be talking about Dragon Age Origins next time. And uh, yeah, that's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you all. Like, comment, share, subscribe, 